Hello, I'm Magnus Rina, and this is the John Sando Books podcast. Today I'm joined by the singer-songwriter Vashti Bunyan to talk about her new memoir, Wayward, Just Another Life to Live. It's a book that, for the most part, recounts a journey she took in the late 1960s, from London to the Outer Hebrides. Travelling by horse and cart and with her then-partner, this odyssey took almost two years and resulted in her debut album, Just Another Diamond Day. Strangely, it went almost completely unnoticed until about 2000, when it acquired a cult following and is now regarded as a major contribution to British folk music. Her songs slip between landscape and dreamscape, and this new book too reads more like a fairy tale than an autobiography. Vashti, hello, welcome, and thanks very much for coming on. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. There's so much I want to ask you about that journey, but before we get there, let's go back to before you decided to pack up and leave London. And a good place to start might be Hampstead, which is where you first arrived in London as a child with your parents and two older siblings. What are your memories of your early childhood there? Um, Because I was the third one and much younger than the others, I think I was allowed a lot of freedom. And so I remember I remember a huge garden leading onto a huge woodland and friends and just being wild and never having to go home unless it was mealtime. Um, um, yeah, it was a great childhood, really wonderful, until my father became ill with a heart attack when I was about five. And we had to leave that beautiful house, it was called Oak House, and move into London, into a, a, a bombed landscape, really, um, I think it's very hard for people now to imagine what London was like in the early 1950s. The way that I remember our street, and it was right in the middle of London by Marble Arch, I remember our street having a bombsite on every corner and my own house had uh, suffered a fair bit. My father was a dentist and he had this house in Seymour Street, a whole house, and at the bottom was the the laboratory and then the surgeries, and then the bit above it was where we lived. And it was, it wasn't exactly derelict, but it was all painted green and brown and really, really murky. And there was a, a crack in my bedroom wall where the sun shone through or the moon, or it was, I'm sure it would be hard now for people to imagine that street the way it was as I was growing up, because now it's full of very, very wealthy people and completely, completely different. But that's where I grew up, playing with the children around about, playing on bomb sites. Again, a fairly wild childhood because I was the youngest. Nobody took a lot of notice of me, which was great. <laughs> you write that you had a hooligan reputation at the schools you went to a few years later. But then from that wild childhood, as you put it, you were sent to Oxford, to the Ruskin School of Art. How did you end up there? Did you want to go? I did. I did. Uh, yes, I, I, I loved drawing. I loved painting. Um, and it was something I wanted to do. But yes, you're right. People then were sent places and uh, that was normal parenting. You were sent. Um, and yes, I, I did want to go to art school. I wasn't sure about that one because it was very traditional and we weren't allowed to paint for the whole year. 
of the first year. Um, and yes, I found it much more interesting because it was in the Ashmolean Museum. It was just two rooms in the Ashmolean Museum. The museum was much more interesting to me. And also the people that I met who were the, the experimental theater company. It was the beginnings of Monty Python and the people, Mike Palin and Terry Jones, who started that kind of humor. And I, I loved them and I spent much more time in, in, in that world really than in the art school. And so I got thrown out. And wasn't it around that time that you went reluctantly with your mother back to Hampstead to your old neighbour's house, where, of all places, you were scouted for a record label. Yes. Uh, I went to a party there. We, my mother took me back to the neighbours. We went to a party there full of all these incredible people at the stage. And I sat on a chair and sang one of my songs, um, which I thought might shock people. It didn't take, nobody took any notice of me at all, apart from this one woman an agent called Monty Mackey, who knew Andrew Lou Golden, the manager of the Rolling Stones. And the next day I was summoned to her office to meet him. <laughs> Why? <laughs> and I, I sang a couple of songs. He said nothing, she said nothing. I thought nothing would come of it. And uh, the next day I was summoned to his office, to Andrew's office and given an acetate demo of the Rolling Stones song, Something's Just Stick in Your Mind. And I was outraged. <laughs> I wanted to, to record my songs. I had been trying and trying and trying and failing to find anybody to record my songs. And so when he handed me a Stones song, I thought, I don't want to sing a Stones song. I want to record my songs. And he said, well, one of yours can go on the, on the B-side. amazing time, an amazing time to be amongst all these young people. I mean, I was just 20. Andrew was 21. He had already brought the Stones to incredible success. And so I was in the studio with all these very young people. And Jimmy Page was a session musician there. Big Jim Sullivan, Nicky Hopkins, John McLaughlin. I didn't really know who they were, but you know, looking back, it's incredible that they were there. And the studio was full of all these instruments and there were three trombones and a mass of other instruments. And I mean, that was Andrew Oldham's kind of production. And there I was in the middle of it, not able to say a word to anybody. I was so completely overwhelmed, but also delighting in the fact that it was all these young people where I had grown up thinking that the entertainment industry was run by sort of middle-aged, mostly men, um, who I, I had no idea who they were, but I knew that they were powerful, 
But then these younger people had kind of taken the reins and that I was delighting in. And I recorded something's just in your mind with my own song on the B-side. It sounds like you're having an interesting time with this new generation of people that you seem quite proud of and excited to be amongst. Yeah. But after recording a few singles and covers, you decide you want out of the music industry altogether. Yeah. Had something changed? What was it that made you want to leave? Um, failure, <laughs> I think. The, the, the Stone single didn't make any impact at all. I turned my back on all of that incredible production and made a single called Train Song, which was just a, a two guitars and a double bass. Um, and I wanted to get back to the simplicity I had started out with. And that didn't work either. And then there were several, I went back to Andrew Oldham and we made several more recordings, which never came to anything at all. And I just, I think by the time the last one was recorded, I'd like to walk around in your mind. I just, I, I was so done in by all of it and all other kinds of things that were happening in my life at the same time that I thought, well, I'm no good at this. I had better stop and not, not even try anymore. So I, I walked away from it, yes. Traveling north, traveling north to find you. Train was beating the wind in my eyes. Don't even know what I'll say when I find you. Call out your name, love, don't be surprised. It's You eventually decide to leave, not just the label, but a few months later, London altogether. And you made the decision alongside someone else. I did. I, I, I met, I met a, an art student called Robert Lewis. He was hitchhiking. <laughs> and uh, I got to know him. Um, and we both had pretty much the same kinds of ideas about, about life. And... It just happened at the same time as he had no money and nowhere to live and still another few months of art school before he, uh, before he did his degree show. Um, and I um, had fallen out with my father because my dog had behaved badly. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> my father wanted me to leave or the dog to leave, so I left. And Robert Lewis at that time was living in a wood behind his art school under a rhododendron bush. So I went to join him there. And uh, <laughs> we started making our lives together there. Of course, we were thrown out of the wood by the man from the Bank of England. And so I phoned up this lovely friend called John James, who had an old, old car, 1932 Austin that he called Happiness Runs after a Donovan song. Sorry, I'm getting really rambly now, but anyway, he came to collect us in his lovely car, Happiness Runs, and we put all our things into it. And it th we thought, we need to have some wheels, but we'd have to have a horse because we don't have any money for petrol. And the car ran out of petrol. And we saw through a gap in the hedge an old wheel. And it was the wheel of a broken down old horse-drawn bread van. Um, and just over the way, was a man in a big 
very beautiful white traveler's van and he was leaning over the door and watching us. And we said, um, do you know where we could find a horse for this? And he said, come back in the morning. And so we did. And that was when we found Bess. And over a little while, we managed somehow, well, actually, no, it was meeting Donovan, um, who had been a friend of friends of Robert's at art school. He lent us the hundred pounds, hundred pounds of the 150 that we had been asked for the wagon and the horse. Robert sold a grandfather clock. We went back and we bought the horse and the cart and the harness for 135 pounds. And we took off for Scotland because having met Donovan, he had just bought some islands off the, the coast of Skye, off the, the west of Scotland. He just bought some islands and a bit of the mainland of Skye. And he wanted to form, not a, a community exactly, but just to have people of like minds, creative people around that place. And he wanted to call it a, a West Coast Renaissance. And we thought, great, <laughs> let's go there. Let's, let's go to Skye with Bess and the wagon. Donovan and his friends went in the Land Rover. We took a year and a half to get there. It hadn't occurred to us how long it would take to get there. But all the, the adventures on the way up to Skye made us into different people, I think, from the people who had started out. And although we found there wasn't a place for us on Skye, it didn't seem to matter. It didn't, didn't worry us because we were different. And also Donovan was there just for a few days, quite by coincidence, he was there when we arrived. And I sang Rainbow River to him. And I think he kind of recognized himself in that because his was the last music we'd heard before we set off. You said that Donovan's music was the last music you heard before setting off. You must have entered an extraordinary frame of mind where the only creative prompts you had were the landscape, each other, and maybe the echo of a song you'd heard six months before. What was that like? I think I, I was very unaware, really, because I'd left my own music behind so thoroughly as far as recorded music went. Um, I wrote those songs, well, partly because Robert had said to me, why don't you stop writing these miserable little love songs and write about what's around you? And so I did. And it wasn't with a view to recording them in any way. It was to keep us going. A lot of the songs are very rocky and um, comforting to comfort me. And now I hear that they comfort babies. <laughs> which is really lovely to hear because that's what they were for. They were to comfort me and to keep us going. And, um, and they did. And I did. I wrote about what was around. And Jog Along Bess was the, the song that uh, I wrote when I was sitting against a, 
a damp stone wall in a Scottish glen with no, no other human beings around us. And it was misty and damp and midges everywhere. And I wrote this wonderfully happy, positive song. <laughs> and it did keep us going. It was great. I'm not surprised because the main impression you get from reading the book and from talking to you is that you have this reserve of optimism. But you did encounter people who expressed cutting disapproval and who had no idea what to make of you and were even hostile towards you. How did it feel to know that what you were trying to pursue was so at odds with what many people thought was right or proper? I think what I learned most was what traveling people have to go through. I had no idea. And they were really the ones who were most positive towards us, clearly, and uh, more settled people didn't understand what we were doing. And yet there were other people, certainly the older generation, and definitely uh, the, the farming community were really interested in what we were doing. And would, I, I wanted to learn so much about pre-industrial uh, life about before electricity, before the internal combustion engine. And there were people who could remember what it was like, not, well, not pre-industrial obviously, but who could remember what it was like not to have electricity, what it was like to plow the fields with horses and to have all, all that they needed and not to be yearning for anything else because their lives were, as far as they were concerned, were complete. And that's what I wanted. I wanted that terribly badly. And yes, the travelers were amazingly um, you know, accepting of us and taught us an awful lot as well. Um, it was an education that I could never have found any other way. Growing up in London, a fairly privileged kind of life in London. And I could never have found all those people or been taught by those people in any other way than by walking slowly up the UK, uh, seeing the landscape change, seeing the seasons change, and the people as well. It, it was an extraordinary experience. It's interesting what you say about this yearning for uh, pre-industrial Britain, because I think that's one of the reasons your music is so appealing, because it has this nostalgia for a uh, rural pastoral kind of Britain that has been lost or perhaps had always been mythologized. Do you think that's what's so seductive about this atmosphere that you evoke, that it's unattainable? Yes, yes, and it is unattainable. And the the whole album, I, for me now, looking at it, hearing it now, it was a fantasy, you know, that, that all that I was going towards was a fantasy, a dream. And although I did learn an awful lot, it was still, the songs were the fantasy of how I wanted it to be, how I needed it to be, how I wanted that innocence and I didn't have it. That was all I, all I really wanted. Not to feel so guilty. <laughs> Learning about what happened to animals on farms was a huge shock. <laughs> um, and yet 
I still remembered my pet, my grandparents' farm and my grandmother's farm kitchen with such fondness. I'm not caring about the beasts outside and what they went through. And so I think a song like Rose Hip November is definitely the fantasy. And of course, the reality is totally different, but oh, don't, don't you just want it to be like that? About halfway through the journey, when you're just into Scotland, Robert falls ill just by the shores of Loch Lomond, where you're taken in by a friend of Gavin Maxwell, the nature writer, and you stay there and you read his book Ring of Bright Water as Robert gets better. Books are brought up at several points in your memoir. I wonder if you could talk a bit about your relationship with books. I wish I could, really. Um, I think I didn't read very much as a child. I was always out <laughs> and away. Your shop is in Blackwell Street, is that right? Blacklands Terrace. Blacklands, Blacklands Terrace. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Black, your shop is in Blacklands Terrace in London. And before I left London with the horse and Robert and Bess and Blue, I worked for a vet in that street. I did. Were you, did you work in the vet that's now um, the art room in the bookshop, number 12 Blacklands Terrace? That's extraordinary. Isn't it just? Isn't it just? And I was working there, I guess, for six months or so. Did I ever go into the bookshop? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope that can change now. You should drop by to John Sandoz, relive your career as a vet. (laughs) Oh, most certainly, certainly. But I wish I had been into that shop and... uh, Yes, the, the days at the vet were um, quite something. <laughs> what, was, what, what are your memories of the King's Road at that time in the area? Oh, the King's Road. It was becoming uh, taken over by young people again, from being just, just a road out of London. Young people were taking over shops and making them into clothes shops, and that it was just becoming so vibrant with, with, with young people. Uh, there was a shop called Granny Takes a Trip, and it was full of old, wonderful vintage clothes, old 90s, <laughs> and military uh, kind of clothing. But yes, I, 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 I loved just walking down King's Road in the time that I head off from the bit, <laughs> and, and just delighting in it, really, delighting in... Again, the, the, the feeling, the feeling in that part of the 60s through 67, 68, 69, where it felt as, as if things were really, really changing. And I couldn't put any words to it, but that there was life coming back, certainly after the war, that the children who were born after the war were taking a completely different direction and for me that was that was just delightful 
So let's go back to your journey and to the Isle of Bernaray, um, which is a small island in the Outer Hebrides. I don't think it was your original plan to end up there, but during the journey, it became your new destination. Could you talk a bit about how long you stayed there and what life was like there? We, in the end, only stayed for six months because uh, we couldn't bring our horse over. And it, throughout the journey, we'd become so not exactly close to her, but part of her life and she was part of ours and she was really important. But we couldn't bring her over because all the animals there, the sheep and the cows, had either been born there or had been swum over behind a rowing boat. And nobody would lend us a boat to swim her over. And it was, well, it was a, a complicated story where the island islanders were allowed uh, two horses, no, two cows or one horse. Um, and there were no horses on the island. But if we were to bring our horse, it wouldn't mean that somebody had to have less, less horses. I mean, it was a very, very weird feeling that this was the excuse made for not bringing the horse over. Whereas we weren't crafters. You know, we, we had, we had no reason to be there as far as they were concerned. And the, the younger people thought that we were befriending the elderly women who were wonderful to us because we wanted their crafts once they had popped off. <laughs> of course we didn't. But that was the feeling that we might encroach on what was theirs. And I think, um, well, halfway through the, that time, we went down to London to record Just Another Diamond Day. And when we came back, the whole house was moldy inside. It was incredible. And we found that the receipt we had for having bought the house had gone. Somebody had been into the house and taken it. And that was when we realized that we really weren't welcome there. But our friends were mostly the elderly women of Bernary who were extraordinary characters. And I'll never forget them. And I write about them in the book a bit, that they, they taught me so much about how you don't have to, well, I think I've said in the book that they would rebel in undercover ways. They were quiet and dignified, but would rebel in undercover ways, like helping me and Robert, you know, uh, that was their, their way of not going with the tide. Wonderful, wonderful women. Um, I'll never forget them. And I really regret, regretted leaving them rather than regretting leaving the island. I regretted leaving them. They had been just, yeah, a, a, an inspiration. Do you think if it wasn't for not being able to ferry Bess onto the island and the unwelcoming community you found yourself in the midst of, do you think you would have stayed on Bernaray? I would have. I would have. Definitely. If Bess had been with us, I think we would have stayed. And, and made our lives there. We wanted to terribly. And I can't see what other reason really. I, I think, you know, we would have gotten over the, the animosity that some showed, not all, and anyway, but some. We would have been able to establish ourselves and the life there I loved. 
although it was changing really, really fast because the electricity arrived at the same time as we did. And things were changing really, really fast. There was a combine harvester, whereas the people that I was with um, and helping with their harvest, it was still done with a scythe. And yet up at the other end of the island, there was a combine harvester that had just arrived. The electricity poles, the first television, you know, it was going to change. I know, well, it has, obviously. And also there's a causeway now. But at the time I was there, yes, the pace of life was exactly what I was looking for. Eventually you return to London and you record the album with your producer Joe Boyd, who also worked with Nico and Nick Drake. It's done immensely well in the decades since, but initially the album went unnoticed. You write that, in fact, it was not really released, it just edged its way out, blushed and shuffled off into oblivion. What did you think of the album? And I ask that because you say, in regards to Joe the producer, it was as if it was his portrait of me, and that when I came to see the finished work, I did not recognise myself. That's right. It was because I had only played by myself with my guitar, or sometimes our friend John James on the dulcet tone that we had in the back of the wagon sometimes. Um, and so it was a shock, really, to be playing with other people. I loved the the arrangements that Robert Kirby did. Uh, Robert Kirby, who had arranged most of Nick Drake's music, which of course I'd never heard. <laughs> I knew nothing about Nick Drake, or the incredible string band or Fairport Convention. But yes, to get back to Robert Kirby, his arrangements were exactly what I envisaged. But when Robin Williamson and Dave Swarbrick and Simon Nicol came in, the folky nature of it wasn't what I had imagined because I wasn't writing them as folk songs. I had never been a folk singer. I had never been to a folk club in my life. I didn't feel that that was me at all. And of course, I didn't know them. I didn't know who they were. I didn't know who Fairport Convention were or the Incredible String Band. I didn't know their music. And so when their music was joined with mine, me being me, I didn't say anything. I didn't say, um, well, I maybe didn't want the fiddle on Jog Long Best, and I didn't really appreciate the other instruments on some of the other songs, but I said nothing. And of course, it was all done in three nights, and I didn't hear it again for well, until about September the next year. This was December we were, we were recording. I didn't hear any of it again until I think it was maybe, well, halfway through the next year anyway. And when I heard it, it just didn't feel like mine anymore. The songs didn't feel like mine. The Robert Kirby ones did. They were what I had envisaged. But the other ones, and also in the original, there are lots of sort of bomb notes and things that, that then and uh, 
spaces that that I didn't think should be there that made it kind of look handmade to me. Whereas I was used to Andrew Oldham's incredible slick productions, you know. And so this, that the contrast to me was upsetting. I know, I understand what Joe was doing. And in fact, he said to me in a Q&A session once that he, he apologized for condemning me to being a folk singer forever because of the people he brought into Diamond Day. I wondered, did you feel like Joe or any of the people working on your record were romanticizing or commodifying your way of life for the past two years? I don't think I would have thought in those terms at all. And at that time, I would not have thought about whether or not the trip was romantic or whether it was going to be romanticized until the album actually, until I saw the sleeve of the album and the notes that that Joe had written in it, which, I, I mean, they still move me. I think it's lovely what he wrote. But that's when I realized that this was how it was going to be seen, was um, a document of the journey. And I hadn't really seen it like that. I think Robert saw it like that. Robert saw the, because he did write the words of three of the songs. I think he, he saw it as a kind of diary, but I didn't. Um, I like that now. I like it. I like it that it was a document of, of the time not just of my journey, but of a lot of people's experience in the late 60s of trying to change their lives. And I like that. When you think back to those first days of the journey, did you think of it as a kind of pilgrimage for a creative end? Because there's something about journeying which is very conducive to the formulation and germination of thoughts. Was there something about it where you thought, ah, I'm going on this for a creative purpose? Or was it more the sense of escape that drew you? It was the escape, mostly. And, and yes, having, having a destination in mind was very important. But I had no idea what I was going to. And every day was different. Um, and, yeah, did I think of it as a kind of pilgrimage? No, I thought of it as the only way to get there. <laughs> and also because I was not in a good way when I left London, it was a wonderful way of taking my mind off me and my own troubled, tumbled mind and how to be able to find a place to stop with the wagon every day and to find water and to find wood and to make a fire and to look after the horse and to stop the dog from getting run over and all of those things. Like I said in the book, I hesitate to use the word healed, but it certainly made me better, made me more able to deal with myself <laughs> and with the people around me and um it definitely straightened up all the all the the tendrils and, and craziness that was going on in my head. It straightened me up and I will always be grateful for that. Once I had a child, he was wilder.
Since that album came out, you've produced two others, Look Aftering in 2005 and Heartleap in 2014. Why did you feel like now was the time to write it all down and record it in a book? Ah, well, I actually started writing it 28 years ago. And some of the drawings in the book are from then. I had decided, I mean, this was way before Diamond Day came out or I knew anything about Diamond Day. I just wanted to write about the journey and explain to my children what had gone on before they were born. And I did these drawings and I wrote the synopsis in a couple of chapters and I sent it off to all the publishers I was told to send it to. Got nothing back at all, nothing, not a a peep. Uh, So I put it away. I put it away. Occasionally I wrote a bit here and there, but not with a thought to publishing it. And then I thought, well, after after look aftering, maybe I should get back to writing the book or writing the story, not particularly a book. I couldn't imagine that it would ever be a book, but to writing the story. Um, and then I didn't. I got involved in music again um, because of recording look aftering with Max Richter, who is the most amazing producer, just wonderful producer. But I would sit next to him as he was working on his his laptop when we got everything back to his studio I mean he was writing he was doing all these wonderful things with this music program and all these lines and all these buttons and all these lights and stuff I really wanted to learn how to do that because back in the 60s I wasn't allowed anywhere near it the desk the lights the, the faders all of those things I wasn't allowed anywhere near it but there it was on Max's computer screen well <laughs> that, that is good so after look aftering i applied to a, a college t- to go on a music course uh, and they said i was too old and i wouldn't be able to understand it so, <laughs> so i taught myself so i didn't do any more writing of the story i do i did an awful lot of um, trying to learn pro tools and logic and Yes, it did take me a long time, but I made an album called Hartley that was mostly done by by me. <laughs> and I I enjoyed it hugely um, from not having anyone, not being in a studio and the pressure of the studio uh, and being able to make a terrible mess and be able to just dump it and not have anybody hear it was was great for me and actually getting in to pro tools and logic was magical to me to have it on the screen and in the years since i have attempted to get back a bit to writing but not in any serious way until the beginning of lockdown and now two years later there's a book and i'm astonished really <laughs> And some of those first drawings from 28 years ago are in the book, and along with a few more, more recent ones. Well, the book and, and its launch seem to be doing very well. You did a sold-out show at the Barbican last week. Does it feel normal, or are you still pinching yourself? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely still takes me by surprise. I was saying that to my kids the other day, you know, that they were, two of them were at the show and said that it was so nice to have people see me differently 
And I said, you know, it's still amazing to me because that 30 years where I didn't have anything to do with music, especially not mine, it's still in there. And so every time anybody says, oh, I really love your music, how? <laughs> how have they heard it? It's still there, you know, maybe it'll change. I don't know. Maybe the book will change it. I don't know. But yes, it's been an amazing time. And uh, yeah, I'm so grateful to everybody who's been involved in it. It's just great. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Vashti. I know how busy you've been with rehearsals, so we really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And I uh, hope to see you on Blackland's Terrace very soon. Well, next time in London, I will definitely come there. And, and I, I, I can't believe that's where you are. I just can't believe it. I should also say one final thing, which is that Vashti has very kindly signed some copies of her book. So if you'd like one, please telephone, email or order online. Wayward, Just Another Life to Live is available from John Sanders at 16.99. Vashti, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>